How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the word. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come before you in prayer, and we remember the injunction in Scripture that we are to pray for those who are in authority over us, those who are rulers, that we might have peace and might have the um, an unhindered environment in which to uh, proclaim the gospel. And Father, we continue to pray for our leadership in Washington as well as in the state, and we pray for wisdom, and we pray that you would... Uh, restrain evil and those who would seek to take away our freedom. In that vein, we continue to pray for the uh, Supreme Court justices, especially since they will vote tomorrow uh, in light of the uh, their decision related to the uh, uh, health care mandate. And, Father, we pray that you would guide and direct that, that voting and that they would have clear heads and objectivity, and especially in relationship to the freedoms that were clearly spelled out in the Constitution. So we are uh, praying especially for that today, tomorrow, uh, as they vote and make that decision. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that we might be strengthened and encouraged because we know that whatever happens in terms of governments, the rise and the fall of nations and empires, that your word will last forever. And the one constant is your character and your love and your grace. And Father, we are thankful that we have that. We have your word that no matter what happens in the world around us, we know that we can have confidence and we can relax and rest in your uh, guidance of history and in your plan. And so, Father, we pray tonight as we study these things in your word that you would strengthen and encourage us by your word and that as God the Holy Spirit teaches us, we would be responsive to his word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we are in Second Peter chapter 1. This is part of our Roman study, and we are here because Second Peter chapter 1, verses, uh, specifically verses 5 through 8, present a, a similar list of virtues to those that are spelled out in Romans chapter 5. Just by way of review, in Romans 5, 2 through 4, we read, that through whom also, that is through Christ, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, this this phrase in which we stand, as I've pointed out, focuses on the present reality of a justified believer. So Paul is beginning to make this shift now. Chapter 5 is really a transition from talking about justification, which is laid out at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, to the spiritual life or how a justified believer grows and matures in grace and by means of grace. And so this is foreshadowed in this, this stair step. And it, we really see that because the other kinds of, of uh, sort of virtue ladders, as I pointed out last time, that we find in other other passages of Scripture are all firmly located in sanctification-focused passages. 
And so that's where Paul is sort of introducing here some of the key ideas that will come back to dominate uh, what he says about the spiritual life in Romans chapters, chapters 6, 7, and 8. So in this grace, we rejoice in hope, which is a forward-looking confidence, a certainty, not a wishy-washy expectation or wishful optimism, but a certain confidence in the future. We hope in the glory of God. And I pointed out, and it's becoming more significant as I read this now in other passages, that the phrase glory for God, glory of God was often used as a sort of a summation of all of God's character. And we see that in passages like Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We would expect maybe righteousness of God or the justice of God, but we have the phrase the glory of God because that is a term that sum, summarizes all of God's uh, character, all of all of his attributes. So we fall short of that. So glory of God focuses us upon the character of God. And I want to drive that home because as we look at these virtue ladders, and last time I talked about and the time before defining virtue, not on the basis of the human viewpoint tradition of Greco-Roman thought, but on the biblical usage of the terminology as it is rarely used in, was, was rarely used in the Old Testament only on three or four occasions. Uh, for example, in Isaiah, a couple of other places, was the term virtue used in the Greek translation because the, the translators, the rabbis who translated from the Hebrew text did not see uh, <clears throat> virtue in a Greco-Roman sense as being equivalent to a, a moral concept of uh, that, that was in the scripture, where you do find a rete used, it's when it's proclaiming the excellences of God's character. So virtue in the Old Testament, that term was understood to be related to the sum total of God's character. It's not a, an abstract or autonomous concept of, of um, moral excellence, which is what you have coming out of both Greek and Roman uh, philosophy and culture. So for the Jews, it was something that was grounded objectively in the character of God. So when we get into the New Testament, we have to continue to follow this principle that the primary frame of reference for New Testament vocabulary isn't 5th century Greece or 1st century Rome. It is the Old Testament. And that is what formed the frame of reference for uh, the apostles, for the early uh, Christians who were mostly Jewish and not a Greco-Roman pagan culture. So Paul says that we rejoice in this confidence in relation to the character of God, we might say, paraphrase it that way, in verse 3. And not only that, but we also rejoice in adversities because we know that adversity produces endurance and endurance character and character confidence. That's our stair step that we have there. It's called a, a figure of speech or a way of developing a logical flow called sorites, which is uh, one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And so here we have that, that stair step. I pointed it out this way 
by thinking through uh, b- basic steps or stages in spiritual growth. There are three major passages, some minor passages, but three major passages that that we've looked at that approach the Christian life in terms of ex- expressing certain certain virtue qualities or character qualities that are part of a progression of spiritual growth. In Romans, it's adversity. We learn to deal with adversity, and we endure. Then uh, we're tested, evaluated. Character is developed. That's a key concept, is that God is producing character in us, Uh, not a character. There's a lot of characters that we know, but he's producing a specific character in us, and then this, the process of this development leads to uh, hope. Then we looked at James, saw a similar list in James 1, 3 through 4. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance has its maturing work that you may be perfect, that is mature, complete, lacking in nothing. So I added that to the, uh, to the uh, Romans list, and we see that it, James looks at it a little differently. Some similar verbiage some similar qualities, but he's, they don't have to be identical. Too often we try to make each of these elements relate to another as if God is laying out some rigid blueprint. And it's not rigid, it's dynamic. There's a lot of different elements that are part of it, and each writer is going to emphasize different aspects of the maturation process depending on what he's focusing on in terms of his specific distinct audience. So we have James talking about a trial. So there's a similarity there between the adversity where Paul starts in Romans 5.3 and the trial of James 1.3. Then there's testing, and there's a similar word there to the word uh, that's the noun dokimion, which is similar to the uh, adjective for tested approved character of Romans uh, 5.4, dokime. But both also emphasize endurance. That's a commonality. And it is that development of endurance, stick-to-itiveness in a spiritual sense, uh, hanging with it, not fading out because of distractions in life, not fading out because you think you've arrived. Uh, I'm amazed how many Christians think they've arrived when they've maybe gotten to first base and they're acting as if they've hit home plate. Uh, because they just don't have this stick to to hang in there over a period of uh, four, five, or six decades. And so they, they fade out. So we have James emphasizing the trial leads to testing, developing character, leading to in development of endurance, which leads to uh, maturity. These are called virtue lists. The, abs- abs- the opposite of a virtue is a vice, as I pointed out last time, and that uh, there's this contrast we often find in these lists, specifically Galatians uh, 5, starting in about verse uh, uh, 19 down through 21. You have the works of the flesh contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. We'll look at that a little later on in this study. So we looked at Second Peter 1, 3, and 4, where there is, it lays the groundwork in Peter's thinking that it is God's power, his, his, the totality of his character as seen in his omnipotence that provides for us everything 
related to life and godliness. And I emphasize that the term godliness there, eusebeia, is a word that emphasizes a, a, a loyalty uh, toward God. We'll look at that again a little later on here. It's not just be living a life that imitates God or reflects his character, but it is grounded on a faithful devotion and loyalty to God. It comes through knowledge. Here we have the word epinosis. I want to talk a little bit about the word interchange between these two forms of the word for knowledge. Sometimes we have the word gnosis, which is a, the basic root noun for knowledge. And then at other times it's intensified with a, a prefix, epinosis. And epinosis emphasizes a fuller, more experiential or usable knowledge, whereas just gnosis emphasizes uh, knowledge itself. And the way we all use language is we sometimes put use a word that reflects a part for the whole. Sometimes we use a word for the whole for the part that includes more than just this, the sum of the parts. And so there are those who come along and say, well, you've drawn too tight a distinction between epinosis and gnosis. And maybe in some cases that's true, but when the writer uses these terms, he's choosing one over against another. After all, if we believe in verbal plenary inspiration, then we believe that every word is is ultimately chosen and selected by God the Holy Spirit, not just for stylistic reasons, but because he's emphasizing something even between synonyms. If you have, for example, agape, which is one word for love, and um, uh, philos, which is another word for love, if you have both of those words in the same passage and they're translated in English as love, there's a reason that the writers of Scripture chose to use one over the other. There's something that they're, they're emphasizing. They're not just choosing them because of um, uh, some sort of stylistic vari- variation. Now, in th- this introduction, we're told that his power comes. All of this is given to us through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. That relates to his character. So virtue, again, is used in relation to the character of God, his glory. And it is by which, by on the basis of his character, or by means of his character, that this has been given to, uh, that has been given to us also exceedingly great and precious promises. Promises focuses us on content. And it is by virtue of having these promises, specific content, oriented statements in Scripture that we can take to the bank as a firm commitment from God that we may, by following those and implementing those promises, that we may partake of the divine nature. See, again, we get this idea that it is God's character that we are able to uh, display that is developed in our lives as a result of the implementation and application of those promises. So we can be participants and, 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 and uh, develop the character of God within us, and it is by, <clears throat> by doing this that we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. And I emphasize this word because it indicates something that is in decay, something that's, that, that is dead, something that's dead and it's, uh, it's rotting. 
And that is the world system. It's a dead, rotting system. There's nothing attractive about it. Satan tries to put a lot of uh, uh, makeup and cosmetics on something that is dead and rotten to make it attractive and appealing to us. But the end result is that it is uh, going to be destroyed, and there's nothing there that's really of value. And the way in which we escape that is by developing this character that God has uh, is developing in us. And so we need to understand what is what are the mechanics, what what's the way in which God does this, and what are the elements of that character. So that's the all of this is to lead up to understand this uh, this virtue ladder that's developed in first in our, excuse me Second Peter one five. Uh, five through seven, where Peter writes, but also for this very reason, that is because God has given this to us so that we can escape the corruption that's in the world. Uh, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So you see there's a progression. You add one to the other. That word there is that there indicates a development from one stage to another. One quality builds upon a previous quality. Now, in light of the chart that I made earlier, I tried to squeeze this onto one, one chart and had to kind of squeeze things in because the list in Second Peter is much longer than the other lists. And it starts down in the lower left with a start with faith. And then to that one adds virtue to that knowledge, which here is gnosis, not epinosis. So we might ask the question, why in the world do we, is the emphasis here on gnosis and not epinosis? And that is because it has to be gnosis. It has to be, you have to learn the facts and the information in scripture before it can be usable information. So gnosis, it's not contrasted to epinosis. It's just the first stage in that development, uh, going from knowledge to a full usable application knowledge. We have to learn it first before it becomes usable and applicable. Uh, then it develops self-mastery, then endurance, so, and then godliness, which is that loyal, faithful obedience to God, uh, and then brotherly kindness or brotherly love, love for one another, and then ultimately love as agape, which is the ultimate in this list. So you see there's there's some differences in the list, but in the middle of the list there's this word endurance, hupomene, that we need to hang in there and develop that that consistency, that that stick-to-itiveness in the in the Christian life. All right, let's go back and just look at the at the list here and start to think about each of these uh, character qualities. I talked a little bit about the first two last time, but I want to go back and just summarize it quickly. The first one is faith. Now, there's a distinction between faith as an act of believing, a noun describing an act of believing, and sometimes the word faith also refers to what is believed. For example, in uh, Rome, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 11, it talks about by faith, and then there's a various uh, Old Testament uh, 
heroes that are, are cited for the way in which they trusted in God. And it's not only has the idea of uh, by the act of trusting God, but it's on the basis or by means of that which they believe to be true. They acted uh, consistent with what they knew to be true, what they were, what they believed to be true, and that is how they uh, uh, lived their life. They did something with the faith. It wasn't just something internal, subjective that was theirs, and they kept quiet. It led to uh, action. This is a distinctively Old Testament idea that the virtues that are developed in the spiritual life are not just some sort of static, passive, mental thing, but that they uh, they all are to culminate in in action. That is that is the result of character transformation. So Paul, uh, Peter here begins with uh, the statement, giving all diligence. And he uses a Greek word here that means to exert all diligence. And it's a, uh, a participle, participial use of the term, uh, which is, indicates uh, means. And that uh, when this means is emphasized that um, that this is the way in which one element is added uh, to another. And so you have a, a, a growth progression that takes place, and he's saying by, by, by being diligent. Now, that is something that engages our volition. The Christian life isn't this sort of mystical, passive thing that God just zaps you with. I pointed this out the other day when we were talking about uh, the filling of, of the Spirit on uh, on Tuesday night, being filled by means of the Spirit. The Spirit influences us, but He doesn't make the decision for us to apply doctrine. We don't just say, okay, I've confessed my sin, I'm in fellowship. Now, the Holy Spirit's going to make this hard decision easy for me, and He's going to make the decision for me. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't override our volition. He brings to our mind the information that we need, and then it's up to us to to implement it, to choose to apply that knowledge in, uh, in the specific situation or circumstance. And we're to be diligent about it. This is the same word that is translated, the King James translated, study to show yourself approved unto God. And that's the word spude, or there it's spudazomai, which was the verb, and it means to be diligent in something. The context there indicates that it is the study of God's Word, so that's why they translated it that way. But it has the idea of, of putting effort into something and consciously being diligent about something. So it means focusing on your spiritual life, developing spiritually positive growth-producing habits that will lead to spiritual growth. So Peter begins by saying, by exerting all diligence, add to your faith. That's as a starting point, add to your faith virtue. Now this word faith also, pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, can have the idea of faithfulness or reliability when it is in a list like this. 
uh, one of these virtue lists. It's not just the act of believing. It is faithfulness in applying that which one, uh, that which one believes. So this is at the very core of, of spiritual growth is having a, a firm conviction, a, a belief in a body of doctrine, and learning to consistently implement that, faithfully implementing that. So we start with faith and add to that uh, virtue. So faith is the starting point uh, of, our, of our spiritual growth. It is an immature concept at this time because you're talking about a spiritual infant, a spiritual baby. That spiritual baby loves just as babies and infants love their parents, but it's an immature kind of love. It's not a mature kind of love, which is what what the progression uh, moves toward. And that you add to this virtue. Now, the virtues, I talked about this last time, is the uh, showing the character of God. There's a character transformation that's going on and may have lost this last time in some of the detail I went into, so I wanted to try to, try to summarize it in this one chart on the image of God, that virtue, in terms of its biblical usage, is focusing on reflecting as an image bearer of God, reflecting his character in us. We're created in God's image in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. That image was defaced or corrupted by the fall. That's Genesis chapter 3. But we're told in Romans 8, 28 and 29 that we are being conformed to the image of Christ, his character. So even though that image has been corrupted and defaced by, uh, by sin, it can be renewed, and it is being renewed. That's the process of sanctification. So through justification and sanctification, that image is being renewed according to the character of Christ. So what God is trying to do with us in terms of our spiritual growth is to make us uh, reflect Christ's character in us. And so we're not to look at various Christian personalities or people that we admire to imitate their character uh, as much as it may be admirable as a Christian. We are to look to Christ, and because that is the pattern that God is using, he's conforming us to the image, uh, to the image of Christ. And so a question then comes, how exactly... Uh, does this uh, take place? And this is the process of, of, um, of spiritual growth. As we move uh, forward, God is de- begins to develop this character in us, and this starts at an early stage. Now, one of the fun things about looking at a passage like this is to try to fit it together with other things that we've learned and other things that we've studied so that we come to a uh, a more usable understanding of of uh, what the, what the scriptures are teaching. When we go through what Paul says, then we look at what Peter says. We look at what uh, other passages teach on the development of the Christian life. We see that each writer looks at things a little differently. When we try to put them all together, that's that's really what what I think is fun. That's what we call systematic theology. We've developed what Paul thought about something. That's Pauline theology, or in 
technical terminology, a biblical theology of Paul. We look at what Peter says, that's a biblical theology of Peter. We look at what John says in the epistles of John, we see a biblical theology of John, and then we try to synthesize it all and put it all together to get a full picture. That is how God wants us to do this, to think a lot about what he says in Scripture. He doesn't give us all the answers. He gives us all the data so that we're forced to go into the text and just massage the text over and over again and pull these things together. So in the past, and the animation on this got all messed up, so I'm just going to jump past it. I talked about foundational spiritual skills. Uh, foundational spiritual skills, whether we talk about these as stress busters or problem-solving devices or whatever the terminology is, these are basic skills that are taught again and again and again in Scripture that we need to use in order to grow and mature as believers. And so across the bottom here, we have five fundamental spiritual skills for the Christian life in the church age. The first is confession. And confession is that which gets us recovery from failure. It's not a license to sin, which some legalists often want to accuse us of saying because we're not treating sin as something that is inconsequential, but that God is not holding that against us. We're we're saved. Our sins are forgiven positionally, uh, judicially at the cross, positionally at salvation, And on the basis of that, whenever we fail, there is the free grace offer of forgiveness and cleansing by simply admitting to God uh, the sin that we have committed. He wants to forgive us, but it's not done without uh, us recognizing that we have sinned and that we have disobeyed him. So there's a recovery procedure that gets us started in the right track again. Then the next spiritual skill is the spiritual skill really of walking by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. I like the term walking by the Spirit because it emphasizes that moment-by-moment dependence. It's a little broader term, but it is roughly, if you're walking by the Spirit, then the Spirit is filling you uh, with His Word. We talked about this on, on Tuesday night that God the Holy Spirit is the one performing the action in filling us with his word, comparing Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16. The Holy Spirit is filling us with his word, stores it in our soul, brings it to memory when we encounter various situations, uh, various situations in life, and we, but we're, we are passive to that. When, that, when the Scripture uses that passive command, be filled by means of the Spirit, it's emphasizing the actions performed by the Holy Spirit. We're just sort of receive it. It's, we're in a position where that can happen as a result of confessing sin. But we're to walk by means of the Spirit. That is actively engaged in dependency upon God the Holy Spirit step by step. It is a lifestyle term. Again, this comes back to a a term related to character. That's uh, Ephesians 5.18 is to be filled with, by means of the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is Colossians uh, Colossians 5.16. So we're filled with the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit. That's the foundation. Confession gets us just to a recovery position. You can, you can confess your sins all day long, and it's not going to move you one 
inch further in your spiritual growth if you're if you don't walk it simply gets you turned and pointed in the right direction to begin walking uh, by the spirit some people are so dizzy they've just about passed out spiritually because they sin confess sin confess sin confess and they never get off that dime we all go through that that's part of spiritual babyhood and and learning but eventually we hope that we manage to spend a second or two in fellowship and walking before we fall down and have to confess again. Maybe after 20 or 30 years, we think we might even get to the point where we uh, don't stumble quite as badly as we have in the past. So that has the, these two realities focus on the spiritual power that the, that the spiritual life isn't something we produce by just going out and deciding that we're going to be moral. We're going to do the right thing. We're just going to make the right choices in the right situations, and somehow we're going to pull ourselves up by our ethical bootstraps and, and uh, please God. Because the Scripture clearly teaches that the Christian life is produced by God the Holy Spirit. So what are those, what's the basis for that then? That's the next three spiritual skills, the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. Now they're laid out there in a logical order. Grace orientation comes first because we have to understand at salvation and in the Christian life that everything is by grace. That is part of doctrine. So somebody who's a little uh, too detail-oriented for their own good might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Grace orientation is part of doctrine orientation, so how do you make a distinction? You're just emphasizing grace as something that has to be understood and you really have to orient to before you can orient to the rest of doctrine. Grace is foundational. But that's just looking at these three in sort of a logical connection. And the reality is that in the growth process, there's an interplay. The three work together in tandem. Uh, there's a, there's a, a give and take and growth that's taking place as the three interconnect. In the faith rest drill, what are we doing? We're learning a promise. See, that's part of doctrine. It's not separate from doctrine. We're face, working on a skill here. It is learning a doctrine and grabbing hold of it with faith and, faith and trusting in it, relying upon God. The promise is true because God is true. It's not the, the focus on the doctrine itself or the promise itself, but on the God behind it who is always true and faithful. So we learn those promises and hear the passage in, in 2 Peter 1.3 that his divine power... Um, or uh, verse 4, actually, uh, by which, that is, by God's character, we've been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, that is, through these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. So we, we put those promises there as something we need to start learning, salvation promises, promises related to uh, forgiveness, and promises related to dealing with different problems and issues in life. People have problems with um, 
depression. They have problems with anger. They have problems with uh, laziness. They have problems with discouragement. They have problems with lust. How do you start dealing with these? By learning promises in the Scripture and claiming them. And it's something that is practiced over and over again, like sitting down at the piano and playing the scales or uh, picking up a, uh, any instrument and running through all the uh, fingering or slide procedures over and over again until they become so embedded in muscle memory that it becomes virtually automatic. That is how you develop a skill. You don't develop a skill by, by applying it once every three or four days. You're not going to get good at anything if you only do it once every three or four days. Uh, so this is something that you learn to practice over and over and over again, and eventually that becomes part of you, becomes embedded as a skill. Now, the second uh, of these three is grace orientation, learning again and again and again that everything in our life is is due to God's grace. We don't deserve anything that we have. Most of the time, if we got what we deserved, we would probably be uh, we wouldn't even be down under a bridge down by uh, Bl- uh, Blaylock or Bunker Hill. We would be, we wouldn't even be down at a bridge downtown under any of those bridges on on uh, Buffalo Bio. I don't know where we would be, but it, it wouldn't be good. Those would be luxury positions if we all got what we deserve. How many times do we make decisions or procrastinate decisions or or make bad decisions and God doesn't lower the boom on us? And instead, God takes care of us, and he provides for us and graces us out again and again and again. And we have to learn that principle that we are who we are and what we are solely by the grace of God, and we have what we have by the grace of God, and not because we are somebody, but because God has chosen to uh, give these things to us freely. Second Peter 3.18, again, focusing on this particular epistle. Uh, Peter will conclude at the end of the epistle uh, a command to grow in the grace and then in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the third one of these three skills, doctrinal orientation. Doctrine is just simply a term that refers to the entire realm of what the Bible teaches. It's not a term that, as it's come to be used in sort of contemporary language, uh, as if it relates to abstract theology. Now, you may not be aware of this, but in theological circles and in seminaries and Bible college, they, they make this dichotomy between doctrine and application. But that's not how the Bible uses the word doctrine. Doctrine isn't just abstract principles. Doctrine incorporates everything from theory to application. In the military, when you, the military uses the term uh, doctrine in this way, starting from uh, planning uh, procedures and developing uh, various ways in which they approach certain problems and issues, uh, and then all the way to the final product and its application and implementation in warfare. The, the, the whole thing is co- it covers under the concept of doctrine. So this concept that we have of doctrine isn't just b- learning a lot of principles in some sort of abstract sense, sticking it away in notebooks so that we can go home and say, see how much I've learned about the Bible and about theology, but it 
should culminate in an action, in changed life and living and in changed procedures that produce success in the Christian battlefield scenario. So we have doctrinal orientation, which is aligning ourselves and our thinking to everything that the Bible teaches us about thinking and about living. So these three work together in a dynamism as we learn promises, we learn about God's grace, we learn content about doctrine, procedures, uh, thinking, and all of this works uh, works together. So we have this on top uh, that helps us to understand that how the basic mechanics of these underlying skills. The result of this is character change. These are just the things that we act on, on in terms of walking by the Spirit. That you, you could say in some sense that that these skills of walking by the Spirit, uh, for the faith, rest, real grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, the rest, are, are just things we do, but it's God to, to, to maintain the walk, to stay in fellowship. But it's God, the Holy Spirit, then, who produces the fruit, the character transformation. We don't do that. I can't say, oh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to produce love today, or I'm going to produce joy today, or uh, I know... Uh, I'm not going to go out and produce self-discipline today. Not in this sense. This is something that is a product of the Holy Spirit that is distinctively and uniquely produced by God the Holy Spirit in my life. The only command you have in Galatians 5, 16 to 20, 25, is to walk by the Spirit. When you walk by the Spirit, then the Spirit produces this. We don't go out and produce it. We cannot uh, change our character into the character of Christ. And this is summarized in this list that we have in Galatians 5, uh, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, uh, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We'll see that word show up in our list in in, uh, 2 Peter here, ekritia. Against such there is no law. So we are to obey the Scriptures... And as we do this, uh, remember the context here in, in verse 4 talks about the fact that, that as we grow in knowledge, it lays a foundation for uh, escaping the corruption of the world. But if we remain ignorant, no doctrinal orientation, no knowledge, then in our ignorance we remain anchored to that corruption. First Peter 1.14, Peter will say, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. See, with knowledge you should not conform to the thinking and the operation of the world. So back to Second Peter 1.5, we add to faith virtue as we grow, as we uh, develop faithfulness in the Word, then to that we begin to see some character application, transformation by the God, the Holy Spirit. And to virtue we add knowledge. And this is the word gnosis. And this is an important word. As I said, he's, uh, in Second Peter uh, 1, 2, Peter says, Grace and peace uh, be multiplied to, to you in the 
knowledge of God. That's gnosis again, the knowledge of God. That is the foundational. You have to, before you can have a, a full knowledge, before you can have a, a usable, appliable knowledge that leads to real wisdom in life, you have to know the facts. You have to know the, the, the facts that have been revealed in Scripture. There has to be a knowledge of information and the knowledge of what the Scriptures uh, teach. And so gnosis is used in verse 2. Gnosis is used here in verse 5. Epinosis is used in verse 3, as his divine knowledge is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. That's taking it the, that the information level to the, the next level as a result of, of uh, application and believing and trusting in the Lord. So we have this growth that takes place. And then in verse 3, I mean, excuse me, then the next characteristic, the fourth characteristic that we have here, is starts in verse um, starts in verse 6. To knowledge we add self-control. To knowledge we add self-control. And the Greek word for self-control is ekratia. It's an interesting word. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So this isn't something that you can or I can go out and we can just uh, just generate on our own. I remember when I was a kid, I had um, I really wanted my dad's uh, Marine Corps K-Bar knife. And uh, he said, well, when you get a plus on your report card on self-discipline, then uh, I'll get it. Now, I think that in elementary school, they, you had to earn everything you got. You started from a deficit, and if you got wanted to get a, a check or a plus, you had to prove it to the teachers, whereas when you got to junior high, I think they started everybody off with an E for excellent. You had to do something to lose it because it wasn't until I was in the seventh grade and they changed the grading system that, uh, that I qualified. Uh, under uh, self-discipline. But self-discipline is something that anybody can generate out of the flesh. There are a lot of very disciplined, organized, self-mastered individuals in the world, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with a spiritual fruit or a spiritual character quality. This is a spiritual character quality that it doesn't matter what your personality is. Many of you have been in different jobs, different careers, where perhaps you had to take uh, certain personality tests in order to uh, maybe uh, advance to another level. I know that these kinds of things were really coming into vogue back in the 60s and 70s. You had things like the Taylor-Johnson temperament analysis test. You had things like the... uh, MMPI, forget what those initials stood for, many others. Fortunately, none of those were required for admission to Dallas Seminary until the 80s. In the 80s, they started requiring that, and there were really good men who did not qualify because they didn't pass uh, some uh, psychological exam. But that has to, that's just showing the trends of their sin nature may be coming out in that. What we're talking about in terms of uh, of, the, of spiritual maturity is that the Holy Spirit produces the character of Christ in us. In our flesh, operating in the sin nature, you may be a disorganized, lazy, um, undisciplined individual. 
But God the Holy Spirit is the one who transforms that. You don't get that. That doesn't become transformed through uh, uh, going through some sort of personal counseling or learning uh, five steps to being a more organized, uh, time-managed individual. It is the product of spiritual growth, and it is the Holy Spirit who changes uh, changes us. In contrast, uh, what we have is a description in 2 Timothy 3.1 that in the last days, uh, people will be uh, undisciplined. They will lack uh, self-control. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.1, Know this, that in the last days, uh, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control. We certainly see that today, a tremendous lack of any kind of uh, self-discipline or self-mastery among uh, numerous uh, segments of the population. Uh, They'll become brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of uh, pleasure rather than lovers of God. Uh, This is a picture of modern, modern society. But believers, no matter what their background, no matter what their character qualities are as a result of their sin nature, can have that transformed through uh, perseverance. So we read in Second uh, Peter 1, 6, to knowledge we add self-control, self-mastery, to self-mastery, perseverance. Uh, perseverance is learning to stay with it, to stick to it. And to that comes godliness. So perseverance, which we see across the board, and we've talked about before, is the idea of staying in circumstances, staying in difficult circumstances, continuing to do the right thing because it's the right thing, no matter what the pressure is to go uh, to a an easier course of action. The next step is godliness, this word eusebeia, which is translated in the Old English, gets this idea of godliness from the word God-likeness. It's a manifest, and, and they, it, it's a good word to a certain degree because it shows that what's being emphasized here is the character of God is being uh, import, imparted and developed within the believer. But it goes beyond that, as uh, word studies indicate by studying both the uh, use of the Greek word eusebeia as well as the uh, Latin word uh, pietas, or where we get our word piety, which has the idea of not only uh, developing this, this character of God, but of showing reverence and loyalty to God. This takes us back to the, the whole concept in the Old Testament, which uh, I want to pull this in here. In the, um, in, the, in the Old Testament, one of the most significant passages, I talked about this a little bit in the last uh, class or two somewhere recently, the greatest commandment in the, in the Old Testament if you ask anybody who's Jewish, is what's called the Shema. The Shema, which is a Hebrew word, the word Shema is a Hebrew word, which means, literally translated, it means to listen or to hear. And the Shema is the uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse, verse 4, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, often that verse is taken to emphasize to emphasize um, uh, monotheism and a singularity of God within Judaism. But even some Jewish scholars are beginning to recognize that that is not the thrust of this of this word, uh, the, when it says the Lord is one, it's not talking about a singularity of God. The word Shema is the opening word. It's a command to hear or to listen. But it really has the implication of obey. If you as a parent come home and your child has disobeyed you, in scolding them, you might say, you didn't listen to me you're not saying that they didn't have their auditory nerves vibrated by the sound of their voice. What you mean by you didn't listen is you didn't obey me. You didn't respond properly to my commands. And so often when you have the word Shema used in Hebrew, because Hebrew doesn't have the wide range of vocabulary that English does or that Greek does, and so one word had to had to function in a lot of different ways. And uh, one of the ways in which Shema functions is in the concept of meaning obey. And so this, to freely translate this, would be obey this, Israel. It is a command. Obey this, Israel. The Lord our God, which is in the Hebrew, it's uh, Yahweh Eloheinu, the Lord our God, talking, the focus is on Yahweh. Who is this Yahweh? Yahweh, our God, Eloheinu, our Elohim. Yahweh, Yahweh Echad, no verb there. Now that word Echad really has the idea that of the Lord alone, not the Lord is one. Now, last time I talked about this, I pointed out that the idea of one doesn't always mean a singularity. The word is also used in relation to Adam and Eve coming together, and the Lord says the two will become one flesh. So it's a recognition that there's a multiplicity within a unity. But the word echad also has the, has the meaning of alone and Even the Jewish Publication Society 1985 translation of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, translates Deuteronomy 6.4 as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Modern linguistic scholarship has made it clear that that is the emphasis here. And throughout the Old Testament, there there are corollary passages that emphasize that Israel is to worship God alone, not any other gods. That's what loyalty to God means. And then when when Jesus is asked uh, what are the greatest commandments, he begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why does he start with that? Because it's a command to Israel to be exclusively loyal to God, and then the greatest commandment flowing from that is the commandment that that not that they are to love the Lord their God with all their heart, which really means mind, soul, which really means life, all their heart, soul, 
uh, mind and strength, every aspect of their being. It's a call to complete and total dedication and loyalty to God and God alone. And so this is emphasized. That's first and foremost, and then out of that flows the second commandment, which is that they were to love their neighbor, their neighbors himself. So when we go back to our passage in Second Peter one, that we're to have this this idea of godliness. It is this idea that, that that brings in not only a reflection of God's character, but that loyalty. In fact, the, one of the greatest words describing the love of God in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word chesed, which refers to his faithful, loyal love. It's one of the primary words. In fact, ahav, the other word for love, is not used that much of God. Chesed is, though, again and again and again, emphasizing that love is loyalty. Love is loyalty. If we were going to define love, that would have to be in the definition, that love is loyalty when you have cases, for example, in the Old Testament when a king would conquer another nation and the conquered king would have to swear loyalty and allegiance to the king who conquered him. They would enter into a contract, and that covenant would demand that the conquered king love the conquered the conquering king. And it didn't mean that they had to feel good about him, that they had to have warm fuzzies and butterflies in his tummy and all those other things that we associate with romantic love. But what it meant was that that conquered king had to uh, be completely loyal to the conquering king, despite how he might feel. He had to be loyal to him. So that comes into this idea of of Eusebia, which is uh, faithful, uh, faithfulness, loyalty to God. And then that takes us to the last two levels, which focus on love. I'm going to stop there because we're out of time, and we'll come back and tie this together uh, next time and uh, finish building out our understanding of how this fits within the spiritual skills and the problem-solving devices, the stress busters, etc. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to focus on your word, to be reminded of your loyalty to us and that we are to be loyal to you and that in that act of loyalty, walking in dependence upon you, then in turn it is your Holy Spirit who produces within us your character, the character of Jesus Christ, so that can be manifested uh, in this world. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with this in Christ's name. Amen.